Hey there, I'm Eric, a.k.a. Revolver. And I'm Sean. And we're the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we're looking at Hellblazer number one and two. These are from 1988. This story is written by Jamie Delano with art by John Ridgway. Yes, indeed. And uh, issue number one, uh, story is titled Hunger. I mostly like Ridgeway's art. It's kind of it's kind of utilitarian, but it's very clear and it's got a good amount of detail in it. See, I I don't know. I'm not so sure. It definitely is very effective mm -hmm. uh, at, at certain places of of having a sort of like dreamlike horror kind of quality to it. Yeah. Other times, I think it seems a little too lurid. Lurid. Okay, that's a fair cop. I think. I kind of thought that was what he was going for. I I think so too, <laughs> but. But it, it, it can be it can be kind of yucky and unappealing <laughs> at certain places. Yeah, I think we're going to see a fair amount of the yucky as this series goes on. It is, I think, something of a workman team. You know, uh, Constantine was created by Alan Moore for his run on Swamp Thing. Right, Swamp Thing. Right, and it's, it's a seminal run in Swamp Thing that redefined the character as the sort of icon of horror comics that he is now, and... Changed a lot of things about his mythology, and also created this character Constantine, who clearly took off to the extent that they needed to give him his own comic. But it's not more writing, even from the beginning. No, right. This is issue number one. We've got uh, Jamie Delano. Yeah, um, and obviously yeah. he would come to be considered, well, an iconic creator on the character. All right. Should we jump into the story here? Yeah. Okay, so we open on Henry Wambach. He's the postmaster of the of Greenwich Village, and it says here that he has, for the first time in his career, betrayed the sanctity of the U.S. mail by opening an undelivered parcel. Yeah, and uh, now he is incredibly hungry. He is starving. Yeah, he saunters down the street in some level of gastric distress. <laughs> Yeah, at first I thought that he was like, it's going to be like a fat guy, you know, too full kind of thing. Because this, for folks that can't see it, he's a very large man. Yeah, and he's distraught from the beginning, complaining about the thing that's tearing at his guts. And he saunters down the street and orders six burgers, which he begins to eat with great rapidity. Mighty mouthfuls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, I notice on this, even on this first page, there's bugs everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's bugs everywhere in the story, and it's gross. But I, I will say that the effect that's created when we get big pages full of swarms of bugs, and it's like it's not even just black swarm of bugs, which is what I would sort of expect to see. I mean, they do a pretty terrific job of creating just a, a room full or a guy who's completely covered in flies and things, and it's I'm not doing I'm not doing it justice. <laughs> Uh, but they get a good level of detail in on the bugs while also just having the place be covered in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's true. Yeah, they're not just drawn as dots. They're like... Is there a giant bug made of bugs somewhere in this story arc? Yes, there is. Yeah, so, <laughs> so John Ridgway does a good job with the bugs. I'll give him that much. Yep, so Henry Wombach makes his way to another restaurant and orders just everything that he can think of, it seems. Yeah, it says he's, it says he's eating the whole menu. He's working his way down the menu. He orders more and more food, and he eats and eats, and yet he seems to be he seems to be shriveling up. Yeah, he's getting thinner and thinner. And then he... Is, is he eating the tablecloth here? Yeah, it looks like he tries to eat the tablecloth. And does he eat this guy's hand? Is that why he's yelling hey? Which guy? The guy in the suit with the tie? No, I think that he is grabbing food from that man. Oh, okay. I, see, yes. I wasn't sure if he was eating um, that guy's hand. Yeah, but then the guy gets, certainly doesn't seem... He's uh, distraught, for sure. But he's not as distraught if you would be if someone was eating your hand. <laughs> so, hey! <laughs> hey! You you stopped that in, in one minute flat. I was using that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he gets so hungry that he lunges and attacks this woman and tries to eat her, it seems like. Uh, and then he dies. He hasn't finished the tablecloth yet. That's just greedy. <laughs> I guess it wasn't that mighty a mouthful. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and, and, he, and he starves to death. Yeah, you know what this reminds me of? Do you remember that episode of 
Angel, where there was a fellow who was incredibly thirsty. Yes! And he had, he had slugs in his body that had escaped from one of the hell dimensions, possibly the Kortov, and they were sucking all the moisture out of his body. He just, like, he took over a smoothie store at gunpoint and drank everything he could, and still just desiccated away until he turned to dust. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really good episode of Angel. That was a really scary episode of Angel, and this is basically the same thing with food. And Wesley solves the problem by giving them liquor. Oh, yeah, which desiccates the slugs right back. Yeah. We're the Murder Guys. Uh, we're here to cover Buffy, Angel, Dollhouse, Firefly, the first two Avengers movies. <laughs> Cabin in the Woods. Oh, Cabin At least the a couple Woods, yeah. of episodes of Roseanne. Toy Story. Yeah. <laughs> Did a fix on that one. <laughs> um, all right, no, so uh, back to not <laughs> Buffy universe things. Because Buffy is published by Dark Horse Comics. Oh, wow, yeah, I guess that's a good point. Um, I hadn't thought that they were competitors, but they sort of are. Yeah. So, that's happened now in London. Yeah, Constantine returns home from an absence. We don't exactly know where. And he learns from his landlady that his friend Gary has taken up residence in his house. Gary Lester. Okay, I want to take a, a moment here. Um, it's definitely Constantine in the Golden Child arc. Somebody writes a song about him and rhymes Constantine with design. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I think I knew that it was supposed to be Constantine. But I don't feel natural saying Constantine, and I, there's no way I can remember to consistently say that. Oh, okay. So I'm probably going to be calling him Constantine. Okay. I'm saying for the record, uh, you are correct. It is Constantine. I am probably going to say Constantine most okay. of the time. <laughs> All right. He's got some really pulp dialogue here. Oh, yeah? Yeah. The thin Sunday afternoon drizzle greases the tired streets, ignoring the queasiness which makes my stomach like an uneasy swamp. I turn up my collar against the toothless gnawing of the early November wind. I'm not doing Matt Ryan's Welsh accent here, but that's the way that I hear it in my head. Who's Matt Ryan? He played Constantine on the TV show. I think the TV show was called Constantine. Oh, uh, the one that was just that was just out on the WB. Yeah. Or the CW. I think it was the CW. Whichever show is a channel that <laughs> has shows on it. <laughs> yeah, it certainly wasn't on UPM. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't think the series was a huge success, but it went a couple seasons, and I guess... People are fans of his interpretation of the character. He's going to cross over into Arrow. He appeared in the, um, well, he did the voice for the Justice League Dark movie. Justice League Dark. Yeah. Yeah, I almost watched Justice League Dark. Okay. I've been seeing ads for it in DC Comics for, for a month now, and it looked kind of interesting. Then I realized that this is one of, like, 50 movies. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, I don't think I can just... I don't think I want to take a bite out of this. Something of an undertaking, but I think a buffet-style approach to those movies is totally what's expected. Oh, okay. Well, I guess so. If they don't, they don't seem to be selling them as a series. They're like, hey, this is something you might want to watch. Hey, this is something you might want to watch. Yeah. You know, we've got The Killing Joke. We've got The Justice League Dark. We've got The Judas Contract, you know? Yeah, and they've got, they've got an inconsistent cast between them. Oh, okay. Which, like, sometimes you're going to hear... Kevin Conroy as Batman, and sometimes you're going to hear Bruce Greenwood. And Adam that... West, very occasionally. No, that's absolutely something they did. <laughs> oh, really? They they released a animated movie sequel to the 1960s Batman show. Oh, it's called The Caped Crusaders Ride Again or something like that. Is it Deaniverse? No. Are the other movies Deaniverse? Not really. Oh, okay. I think the first one, I think New Frontier was intended to be a season finale of Justice League or something, and then they made it into an animated movie anyway, because um, Justice League got cancelled. But Okay, but they are all canon with each other. No, I don't think so. Like, New Frontier clearly sets up the Justice League, but takes place in the 60s, so that's not canon with other things. So what you're saying is, in, the upshot of this conversation is that I could watch Justice League Dark if I wanted to. Yeah, you could. And it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, in any case, so, we're certainly getting a lot of establishment of John Constantine's character here, and he is a character. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm just looking at the the level of uh, <laughs> the level of hard bitten cynical narration that's on display here, and I'm kind of wondering if it's a little too much. But anyway, so he he finds out that his uh, his erstwhile friend Gary Lester has taken up residence at his place, um, and he also is told by his landlady that Gary 
had her send a package to America. Yeah. And this is the second time we've heard about a package in, in three pages. Yeah, she mentions <laughs> one other foreboding thing, which is that the... She doesn't exactly give us context for what's going on here, but she does say, as if I haven't got enough on the plate without the right insects. Yeah. So so he gets to, into his flat. Did you see how I said flat there? Yeah. And he, he takes off his shabby trench coat to reveal a surprisingly nice suit. I didn't think Constantine yeah. dressed that well. Yeah, he's... You're right. He's looking suave right here. And he finds a, a, a buttload of bugs in his apartment, culminating with him opening up the bathroom and finding there's Gaz Lester in his bathtub covered with bugs, and he seems to think that he's hallucinating them. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that Constantine found in his apartment is a heroin needle with crushed up insects in it, which is creepy enough. Don't do heroin with or without bugs in it. Folks. Yeah. Yeah, and Lester believes that he's suffering from withdrawal symptoms. Hope he has no deed in the bath. Seconds later, I almost wish he had. Yeah, Gary Lester is really going to be nothing but trouble for Constantine and the rest of the world. <laughs> I guess that's right. So, Constantine deals with this with a surprising degree of calm. He slams the door on, on Gary Lester without a word and walks down to the corner store. <laughs> right, and uh, there at the corner store we see a couple of skinheads. Yeah, a couple of skinheads being douchebags to the Pakistani shopkeep. Yeah, and they've got jackets on that say British boys. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm pretty sure that they're central to a later story arc. These British boys. Oh, yeah? So this I, is setting something up? I think so. I think so. Cool. So I do think we find out that Constantine has nothing pleasant to say about this kind of, this order of people at all. Yeah, no, yeah he's, he's, he's definitely not a fan of these dumb kids. There's two other things I wanted to point out uh, on this page. Mm -hmm. First of all, the very last panel is really confusing. I mean, it took me, <laughs> it took me a long time to figure out what's going on in this panel. But it looks like the shopkeeper is spraying the skinheads with bug repellent? Oh! I think maybe they tried to fit a little much action into this panel. I think the skinheads leave. We'll be back, Packy. Pond life, says Constantine. And then the shopkeep explains that the bug spray is great at killing all creepy crawlings and, and sprays the bug spray to demonstrate. That's the impression that I got. Okay, so what we're actually seeing here is about 15 seconds worth of time, and he sprays the, the spray after the guys are already out the door and gone, but we see them at the same time because they tried to cram it all in one panel. Yeah, that's my feeling on it. So Constantine buys 20 packs of cigarettes, and... Uh... That was the other thing I wanted to talk about, is I actually... Uh... So, so let, me, let me point out the plot here, just so that we're following the oh, plot. Constantine buys 20 packs of cigarettes and 12 cans of bug spray. Right. Yeah, but what I wanted to, to mention, and this is for, for reasons that are sort of strange, I actually started reading Constantine with the Dangerous Habits story arc. Yeah. Not here at the beginning. So that was when I first noticed that Constantine uh, smokes a kind of cigarette called Silk Cut. Yes. And I didn't know when I first saw Silk Cut whether that was a brand or, like, a type. Like, is that a cut or something? Oh, right. Like, is that a cut of tobacco? Silk cut cigarettes, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so I looked it up, yeah. and it turns out that, uh, that Silk Cut is a British brand of cigarettes. Uh, not, not a style, but, but actually just a brand. And I sort of became, like, minorly obsessed with the names of British cigarette brands. Okay. <laughs> like, I read a bunch of them, and, you know, they're just, like, they're very foreign to... Uh, you know, to an American reader, because we don't we don't have any of these brands of cigarettes here in, in the United States. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, Silk Cut is is the brand. Uh, and Silk Cut's a real brand. Yes. Not I I believe there's a fictional brand of cigarettes that's kind of omnipresent. Is it Morley's? Yeah, Morley's Morley's are fake. They show up in a lot of places, including the X Files. That's what the cigarette smoking man is brand. Yes. Yeah. But no, John Constantine smokes Silk Cut. And, uh, and that is a very real brand. Okay. Were there any other cool brands of British cigarettes that you wanted to point out? <laughs> um, okay, so there's another one called 
Benson and Hedges. Benson and Hedges. <laughs> Benson and Hedges brand cigarettes. Yeah. That sounds like some ghost detectives or something. <laughs> yeah, that one quite struck me. So Constantine rolls back into the flat. This is it, wildlife. Armageddon for insects. And sprays down Gary in the bathroom with the cans of bug spray. Killing bugs by the hundreds. It's good that they're not, you know, some kind of indestructible mystic bugs. They're just bugs. It's the mystic presence in the apartment attracts regular bugs. Yeah, I, I think that if he was trying to kill invincible bugs, that would really just sort of hamper the plot. <laughs> yeah, that would turn into a big distraction. <laughs> Chaz arrives, one of Constantine's oldest friends and most reliable. Yeah, uh, who he was very, uh, very unpleasant to on the phone. <laughs> he said something like, don't tell me your problems, just do it. <laughs> but uh, he apparently has to arrive with some heroin for Gary here. Yeah, it wasn't clear to me when I first read this whether they actually supply Gary with heroin. Well, we see we see Chaz here preparing a needle, so I'm, mm. I'm guessing that they do. Yeah, and, and Chaz is incidentally not happy about this at all. No, I wouldn't be either. With Constantine taking that tone with me. But since when have you had scruples, chum? Just straighten him out, I need answers. Yeah, and they straighten him out enough that he is able to tell them about his time in Tangier as a sex tourist? Ugh. <laughs> yeah, well, he mentions the name Nemoth here. Nemoth made me do it. Um, I think he's referring to, to being on the heroin again, being on the junk, but John says that he was... Well, John mentions that he and Gary got up to some trouble in Geordie Land, which I dutifully looked up. Uh, that is a place in northeast England near Newcastle on time. Yeah, I looked it up as well. I had to find out what Geordie Land meant. Cool. Um, I was I was assuming just, you know, LeVar Burton. That's like Deck 27 <laughs> of the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're a main engineer. That's where Geordie lives. <laughs> um, uh, he was in Morocco doing the William... We're nerds. <laughs> Last I heard, he was in Morocco doing the William Burroughs bit. You know, junk boys in general weirdness. Yeah, so... Yeah, so that's why I kind of, like, I was like, oh, man, is Gary a sex tourist? Like, Gary's a really big creep. But we don't have a lot of sympathy for Gary, but one of the things that we're going to see over and over again, I think, in this series and with this character is that when you don't have superpowers when you are not a superhero, doing battle with mystical evil takes it, it, takes it out of you. It does a number on your soul. Mm -hmm. And Constantine manages to some degree, but he is fortified with cigarettes and alcohol. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of his uh, his old companions have fallen down one hole or another. Yeah, <laughs> and are shitty people. Yeah. Uh, but it, it really seems like Gary is here in Tangier because it offers easy access to young boys. You think so? I, I think it's implied. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not okay. sure, but I I, it was... I'm picking that up as a possibility. Uh, okay. I thought it was mostly for heroin, but fair enough. Oh, this guy offers him a girl or a boy very clean. I assumed that was just something that was happening in the scene. I guess I, it didn't occur to me to think that was what Gary was interested in. Well, because Constantine says earlier that he's doing uh, junk boys and general weirdness. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know, but it seems, like a, it seems like a very plausible reading of what Gary is doing there in Tangier. So, anyway, Gary is sitting in an alley, minding his own business, when a large man chucks a starving child out of a out of a door, out of saying, a workhouse, yeah, saying "No work, no eat." Yeah, the boy is scary thin, mute, and covered in swirling tattoos. Right. So Gary takes him home and does an exorcism on him. Yeah, this is interesting. A black Not passion does him a lot of good. Me. It's irresistible. I want to do it. Need to. And it's like he's. Yeah. A, I don't know if that means that he's taking advantage of the kid sexually, but it seemed interesting to me to think of him as being, like, addicted to doing exorcisms and getting a high off of them. Yeah, I don't understand why Nemeth would gain anything from... Well, I guess, no, he does gain something. He wants to be free of this of this little boy. So, so maybe he does gain something by giving Gary the irresistible urge to do an exorcism. Yeah. But in any case, Gary looks really scary on this page. Oh, yeah. And his exorcism certainly doesn't do this kid any good. Yeah, the exorcism causes Nemoth to come out of the boy in the form of thousands of flies, which take the form of a giant fly made of thousands of flies, but they don't come out of the mouth, and they don't just conjure up. They burst out quite bloodily. Yeah. 
And he dies. Uh, an unfortunate end for that kid. Yep. But Gary is more successful than he has apparently ever been with exorcisms before, at least in his history with Constantine, in that he manages to cram that demon into a bottle. Right. So he's got the demon in a bottle, and then he brings it back to Constantine in London. And finding Constantine not at home, he ends up sending the bottle to where he thinks he is in New York. Yeah. He feels he has to get rid of the bottle because it threw... Through the bottle, the demon is reaching out and tempting him to seemingly to take the demon into his body. Yeah. So the longer he's hanging out with he's hanging out with his bottle, the more his his inclination to let the demon loose and do a bunch of heroin just becomes irresistible. <laughs> yeah. So, but, and, and we don't know in what order. Yeah. As well, it summons insects to itself. The insects have started to arrive, and the apartment fills with them. So he gets rid of the bottle, sends it to Constantine's friend Emma in New York. That's going to come back. Yeah, for sure. So Constantine kind of very casually here takes on the role of the hero. And he says, it's a bloody horrible mess, but I suppose I better sort it out. He starts looking into the problem by having Gary draw a picture of the kid. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then he tells Chaz that he's going to have to babysit Gary. Right. And, uh, and we get a, an important mention here. The girl with the spray can's good. Reminds me of Emma. But Emma's on the other side of the world. And she's dead. Yeah. So, already, Constantine's <coughs> lost a lot of friends. Uh, and this is issue number one. So, yeah. this is clearly something that happened in his Swamp Thing story arc. Which yeah. we have not read. Yeah, there, we have not read Constantine's first appearances in Swamp Thing. We are going to hear mentions of several of his friends who were killed by a demon called the Invunch. Yeah. And that is an incident that occurs in Swamp Thing. No idea if we're saying that right, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, he, ha he has a lot of friends who were killed by the Invunch and make appearances in this story. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> First, uh, we have Constantine doing a little research, and he pops over to the British Museum, where there is a conveniently curious tourist who asks him, what is this place, please, so that John can explain that it's the British Museum, where we keep all the loot. <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote down that line, too, and that's... I, I really like that, especially seeing as, like, remember last week when the British Museum was, in fact, looted? <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> in the pages that's of a good point. In the pages of Sandman. So clearly some of the loot has returned to the British Museum yeah. since 1916. Well, yeah, Constantine at least thinks that it's there, which means that the theft was hidden from the British public. Yep. Effectively. This professor... Tells Constantine that the tattoos are some kind of sacrificial magic from southern Sudan. The Dinka people, a spell of binding or containment. Better pack me pith helmet, Constantine thinks, and he's off to Africa. What does that mean? A pith helmet? Yeah. It's what it's what the old school explorers wore. Like um, Dr. Challenger in Jules Verne movies. Oh, okay. One of those like one of those safari helmet things? Yeah. I got, I gotcha. Yeah, oh, and we have a phone call here between John and a guy named Papa Midnight in New York. Yeah, and much like his phone manner with Chaz, he doesn't waste a lot of time on the niceties. No, he's very, uh, what's the word, insolent. Yeah. Uh, particularly with powerful, dangerous magic types, which we're going to find out is what Papa Midnight is. Yeah. So he calls up Papa Midnight... And he, he finds out about the restaurant incident that we saw in the opening pages of this issue. And he decides he better go to NYC, but southern Sudan first. Go to run now. Say hello to the skulls for me. Mm. Yeah. So he goes to Africa. This is a little quick, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I never really thought of him as a globetrotting hero. I guess he doesn't have adventures all over the place, but... We're moving at a pretty good clip here, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I don't know where he gets his resources... Because I guess his apartment's not filthy dirty, but it doesn't seem like a terribly high-class place either. Yeah. But he's able to, to fly cross-continent well, several times in several days at this well, point. Well, one of the things that we find out in, in the course of this story is that he, he took Papa Midnight at some point in the past for $50,000. Oh, that's It doesn't point. seem like it's a huge, huge deal to him. So maybe, maybe he finances himself as through gambling and low-level cons, perhaps. Yeah, that makes sense. And so he sort of lives hand to mouth, but he can he can arrange for more money when he needs to. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. He gets to this little tiny village in the Sudan. Yeah. And he meets the village elder. Not 100% comfortable with some of this stuff here, but... No, there's definitely a lot of, like, troubling racial portrayals in this in this first story arc. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's part of what I meant when I said I wasn't entirely sold on John Ridgway. Okay. But, but go on. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely exoticism. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this wouldn't be out of place in Alan Quartermain, this kind of, like, visiting the, the shaman in the little village in the middle of nowhere to learn how the magic works. Right. And as well, like, some of, some of John's descriptions come off a little borderline racist. Well, yeah, especially when he's... I'm jumping ahead a little bit yeah. here, but when he leaves the village yeah. and he, he describes the, the people down below moving around like insects. Mm. So I'm thinking of the quick glance of cold black eyes toward the hill. He doesn't speak the local language, but basically the fact that a foreigner has interest causes them to look at the house on the hill so he knows that's where the shaman is and goes there. Yeah, later on, uh, the African sky is endless blue. Below our shadows sides a city of tents. Tiny black dots move amongst them like insects. I don't know that I would have thought anything of that, but taken with some of the stuff that happens later in this story arc, it's it's kind of, you know, it's very it's a very disconcerting attitude towards race. Yeah, so this is a little uncomfortable. Yeah. John speaks with the shaman, and he's able to communicate with him. You hear English. I do not speak English. That's cool. The fact that, like, there's, there's this translation effect going on where the, he can make constant, he can hear him in his own language even though he doesn't speak English. Yeah, to which John snarks, you could get a job at the United Nations. <laughs> yeah, John's snark is always a lot of fun. I think we could try to keep track of the number of different accents that I do for Constantine over the course of an issue. <laughs> it's going to go up. <laughs> it's going to go up enough. Um, so he decides to show him what happened through the use of some psychedelics. And Constantine says, Christ, I hate psychedelics, which I thought was a great line. Yeah, yeah. And also, Constantine's head is an unpleasant place to be. And I think, uh, I think the kind of blast of absolute reality that 80s and 90s British writers assume psychedelics have on a person is not something that he enjoys. Mm. Also, I just want to point out before we turn the page that here um, in the fourth panel on this page, he really looks like Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah, totally. It's not a pith helmet. It's more Indiana Jones hat. And this page, I should mention, is lit entirely in reds and yellows and pinks because they're in a hut which is lit only by a fire. Yeah, it's, so then we, we come to the I next page. I think is a very good word for that page. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and this next page is trippy as hell. Yeah. So the shaman reaches into uh, Constantine's head and pulls out his eye. He does indeed. And then he puts his own eye in there? Yeah, replacing it with the soft fruit torn from his own body. Which allows John to see what happened. Which is that this shaman had bound Nimoth inside a starving child. To, to start at the beginning... The hunger of the villagers sort of created Nemoth, or at least oh, okay. there's yeah. this, it gave the spirit strength. And I think it had to be someone who was experiencing strong desire, that's why it had to be a starving child. Right. This village elder, you know, he had a hard time picking one of his own to sacrifice because they're all his children, mm-hmm. but pick one he does, and he binds Nemoth in this sacrificial kid and leads him out into the desert, but does not have the strength to stay and wait for him to die. Yeah. And as a result, Nemoth gets loose because, in fact, the kid doesn't die before he is captured by slave traders and presumably sold to that workhouse in Tangier that we saw earlier. Bushfighters found him and sold him to slavers for tobacco. I am a fool. I should have stayed to oversee his end. Yeah, the idea is that Nemoth and the, the, the sacrificial prisoner can consume each other both dying in the process, and that's apparently the only way to kill the king. Right. Yeah. But the shaman can't help anymore, because his power is bound to his specific place, his specific earth. And yeah. so John's got to deal with it. So a page later, we're in New York City. <laughs> sure are! <laughs> Again, just very, very rapid travel here. From place to place. Yep, Africa 36 hours behind. And he's got, he has apparently stopped by and picked up Gary as well. Yeah, so he brings Gary to New York City, 
And as they're riding in the cab, they hear about some strange events on the radio, some that we already knew about and some that we didn't. And then they find their way into Papa Midnight's Club. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. We see, I mean, we saw at the beginning that Nimok took over that guy and, and made him eat food. And that was, right. that was a fat guy. I guess we're supposed to presume that food is something he's really into. And, and the same thing with the, the starving child, obviously. Yeah. But then we have the boss who tried to eat his secretary. Today, horrified shoppers watch as Bruce Parker fatally cramps himself with gemstones in his 57th Street store window. I think it's pretty interesting that the demon feeds on different kinds of desires and makes people eat the things which they want. I think we could have seen that instead of being told it. Yeah, definitely. And there's a... Nemoth himself gets a big monologue, I think in the second issue of this story arc, mm -hmm. in which he talks about how basically that he's normally a hunger demon, but New York City is so crammed with such an interesting variety of obsessions, you know? Yeah, it's too bad that we couldn't have had like a two-page montage in which we saw more of these different varieties of desires. Sure. Oh, well. So they had to pop a Midnight's. <laughs> where it turns out that Say Hello to the Skulls was actually pretty literal. Papa Midnight talks to Skulls for information. Yeah, a skull that is apparently his sister. Yeah, Papa Midnight has a bit of a history with a sister who was also a, a voodoo like him. Do and we know if this is the first uh, appearance of Papa Midnight? This is the first appearance of Papa Midnight, Okay, I believe. He will have a mini-series of his own that gives a, a lot of his history later on. I noticed that it's Midnight spelled uh, N-I-T-E. Yeah. And so I, I guess, I, at first I was confusing him with Dr. Midnight. Yeah. Yeah, this is DC. So, so yeah, it's just a coincidence that they're both Midnight and they both spell it that way, I guess. Yeah, I, I was sort of expecting him to be Dr. Midnight at first, but, uh, but he's not. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I think that occurred to me, too. So, Papa Midnight's club is high rent... <laughs> John says, I'd have more chance of getting an alligator through the front door than Gary Lester. So they go to a service entrance where John picks the lock. Yeah. Nice to have a variety of skills. Nice to have some cross-class skills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's quite handy there. But first he loses his temper at Gary. Stop going on about dope. You are a stupid, weak cretin who can't resist screwing himself up. Yeah, and that's why the whole world's in trouble, right? Uh, and all these horrible things are going on in... New York City. Not that every horrible thing that's going on in New York City is Gary's fault, but, you know, damn near. <laughs> yeah, that's what he says. He says, Because you are a stupid, weak cretin who can't resist screwing himself up, we are on the verge of mass demonic possession in one of the foremost population centers of the globe. To which Gary replies, Don't hurt me. Yeah. Thinking of yourself again, Gary. <laughs> yeah. Midnight is apparently also aware of this ongoing situation and has decided we must make sure it dines elsewhere. <laughs> what a mensch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say exactly what Midnight wants. I don't get the impression he's much of a philanthropist. I think getting rid of Namoth for him is more of a don't shit where you eat situation. <laughs> <laughs> or, or like Tony Soprano would say, you definitely don't shit where I eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, so they're on their way up to uh, Papa Midnight's service elevator, and this is where we get another one of the really uncomfortable moments, because there's this really sort of black servant of Papa Midnight, and Papa Midnight is also black. Yes. But but he has this black servant who's portrayed, like, very inhumanly, and Constantine smacks him in the face and yells at him and calls him calls him a dog and a piece of excrement. And we will eventually find out that he's a zombie. Yes. But we don't know that yet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, and when we see uh, Constantine slapping him and talking to him this way and saying, you've just got to put the hard word on them, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's a really super uncomfortable scene, and there's more to come. Well, yeah, and, and we learn on the next page or so that this is a zombie, but... But the original, like, voodoo concept of zombies was it was something that you would be persuaded that you were through hallucinogens and superstition. Okay. At some later point, Midnight will refer to the zombies as dead already. Yes. I certainly hope he's being literal and that these aren't just people that he's essentially mind-controlling work for him, which makes John's treatment of them even more shitty. Right. Yeah. But in any case, even with the justification that they're zombies, which, again, we don't know yet when we see Constantine doing this, 
it's still just a, a really gross and lurid treatment of black characters. Yeah. So they make their way up to Papa Midnight's penthouse. Yep. John continues to be insolent and snarky, as is his way. <laughs> are they in a penthouse, or are they literally on the roof? I think I see a windowsill there. Oh, okay, yeah. They're in, like, a glass-walled enclosure on the roof of, of, his, uh, of his building. Right. Yeah, he's, got, of, he's yeah. got his whole penthouse made up to look like a jungle, which, not racist at all. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. John and Midnight are not friends. But they have a common purpose here. You yeah. cheat me out of $50,000, then ask for help, you have Satan's nerve. Yeah, and so, you know, they kind of talk about the situation with both of them more or less being already aware of it. And basically, Constantine asks Midnight for help and leaves Gary in his charge. Yeah, leaves Gary in the hands of Papa Midnight. Incidentally, does Papa Midnight appear in the film? I honestly couldn't tell you. It's been so long since I saw it. Okay. Oh, we have a line here. Give my love to your sister. She was an amazing woman. She still is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, that's Constantine saying she was an amazing woman and Papa Midnight saying that she still is because he converses with her on a regular basis. True. And one of the things that he says to her, which is just ice cold, <laughs> is, Sister, I thought your intimacy embraced all the demons of hell. <laughs> that's some cold shit to say to your family. <laughs> wow. I'm not sure that he's judging. <laughs> no, it, it seems like he probably is just saying it in a surprised way that she doesn't have any intelligence to give him about this Nemo character. But taken out of context, it sounds like quite a quite a put down. Yeah, Gary incidentally has gotten from John that he's that Papa Midnight is going to help him get straight. That is to say, provide him with heroin. Mm, okay. Midnight asks, "Tell me about your strange friend. Do you trust him?" John, meanwhile, walks off into the rain. Yeah, and he ends up at Emma's apartment and talking to Emma's ghost. Yeah, that was a bit of a surprise. So he decides to go check out specifically the place where Lester sent the hunger spirit, where he sent the bottle, to make sure that that place isn't still infected by the demonic power. I think, I think that's one of the reasons that he's here. Yeah, he also just needs to see the place again. He has a personal, a yeah. personal attachment to the place, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and again, this would be better if we had read this Swamp Thing story arc, but we haven't, so we will make do. Mm -hmm. So John meets this, this sort of artist guy who's now living in Emma's apartment. Yes. And he says he didn't know I'm Emma, but her death inspired him. He has painted a fairly graphic painting of Emma falling to her death from the building. Well, graphic is maybe the wrong word, but it's certainly evocative. Very stylized, yeah, I, w I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's gory. Well, there's this, this red line that culminates in a great red splash on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and when he sees Emma's ghost, she's, she's not in black and white, like the ghosts we see later. She's, yeah. She's just is, drawn as a person. It's kind of unique in this issue mm -hmm. that she's drawn in full color. She could be standing here for all the audience can tell. Right. And the art in the next issue is still, still John Ridgeway. So, so Emma's ghost appears. I missed you, John. It's lonely where we are. Yeah, so they chat, and Constantine clearly still feels very guilty about her death. Yeah, Constantine doesn't seem entirely sure, I think, whether he's talking to a ghost or a hallucination. Right. He Maybe the issue wants to keep it ambiguous on this point. And Either way, I think John has, like, no patience for it. Yeah. He... I mean, he's tempted to, like, indulge in the presence of, of his lost friends and loved ones, but he's also just kind of pissed that they're giving him hell for, <laughs> for their deaths, which he doesn't think he could have controlled. Yeah, I think maybe that ambiguity about whether she's a ghost or not is part of why she's drawn as a normal person in this issue, Yeah. unlike the ghosts in the next issue who we start seeing in black and white. Yeah. Okay. So... Uh, he goes out walking with this ghost of Emma, and he encounters another hunger incident where a vegetarian rushes into a butcher shop and eats everything inside. Yeah, and again, dies shriveled up. But he follows a stream of insects from the scene to a church. Right. 
And here we have a really cool uh, full-page spread of Constantine facing off with Nemeth, and Nemeth looks really scary. Yeah, we can't really see in this shot that he's a uh, that he's composed of other flies, but he is a giant fly with a long prehensile tongue. Quite yeah. scary, creepy stuff. And there's there happens to be a priest in this church that John has followed. My entrance confuses it. Now it must choose me or the priest. So so John starts shouting insults at the demon. <laughs> yeah, and is this the is this the influence of Nemoth himself? that's causing him to do this? That's an interesting point. One of the notes that I had taken about the earlier scene with Gary and the heroine is, what's John's drug? Black magic or adrenaline? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question, and we don't know him well enough yet to really answer it. I think we could definitely read this as John putting himself on the line to save that priest. But you could also think that, yeah, Nemoth's presence causes him to indulge in his own vice, which is... <laughs> Both his, his uh, need for adrenaline and also his self-centeredness. <laughs> yeah. But the ghost of Emma saves him from himself, slash Nemeth, by telling him to run with enough force at the right moment that he does so, and leaves the priest to Nemeth and escapes. Yeah. Yeah, this is a Constantine moment once again. Because as he sees, as he sees the priest overcome, he says, pathetic the way he waves that cross. But later on... At the end of this issue and into the next one, we see that he is he is fairly guilt-stricken about the old man. Yeah. And in the last panel of the issue here, it kind of looks like this priest is about to eat the Christ figure off of the crucifix. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a page in the next issue where it certainly looks like he has done so. Hmm, okay. That didn't, I didn't put that together the first time. I guess that makes sense. That's That's his obsession. Yeah, I, I guess so. I, a priest obsessed with Christ is sort of, sort of pat, don't you think? Sort of pat. No, oh, I suppose. Kind of stereotypical. It's, is it any more so than any of the other ones we've seen? I, I, I guess not. You know, over the course of this story arc, we there's a there's apparently a, a gemstone guy who is obsessed with gemstones that he eats them, and there's a fat guy who's so obsessed with food. There's a comic collector also who eats his collection of comic books. <laughs> That's that one's for us, the fans. <laughs> All right, so we've come now to the second issue of this two-issue story arc, Hellblazer number two, A Feast of Friends, written by Jamie Delano with art by John Ridgway. Constantine is still walking around in the rain. He complains about it a lot, but he really enjoys it. <laughs> it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of his thing. He has a trench coat. It's what you do. Yeah. My rain-soaked threads plastered me in a damp embrace. Feet squirm in saturated shoes. He makes his way back to Midnight's Club. Yeah, Midnight's Club, which is apparently also called Midnight, but spelled correctly. <laughs> and, uh, Maybe it's a thing where you can't trademark your own name. <laughs> and the, and the, club has, the club has all sorts of vices. There's drinking, there's dancing, there's also apparently a place where you can, where you can watch people having sex. I suppose um, a live sex show is better than a dead sex show. Constantine snarks. <laughs> yeah, and... You know, I, I, I'm sure that this is an adults-only... I don't know how the comic book rating systems worked mm -hmm. at this time, but, you, you know, Constantine swears and stuff, so I'm sure that this is marketed for adults. Yeah. But, anyway, but they, they use... They have a really clever use of silhouettes here to kind of show you that there's this sex show going on without actually showing you any sex. True. Although, you know... Well... It would have felt gratuitous if we just saw it in all its glory, you know? Yeah. De oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, maybe it feels gratuitous even so, but, but well, less than it could have been. Certainly not as gratuitous as what comes next, which is that another thing that the club offers is blood sports to, to watch. Yeah. And, again, this is just a, this is just a really not cool scene where we have these two... These two zombies beating each other to death, and... Yeah, Constantine actually confronts Midnight a bit about the fact that he has this, this blood sport arena in the basement of his club. And Midnight kind of justifies himself a bit by saying they're zombies. They can't suffer. They're dead already. Yeah, does it, does it seem to you like he's confronting him? I thought that Constantine was way too blasé here, and that's part of what bothered me so much about it, is that yeah. he's just sort of... 
Yeah, it seems like he sort of, you know, he flinches a little bit when there's blood spraying on him from the fight. But other than that, it doesn't really seem like he minds, which is, you know, part of why I thought that this issue came, this story arc came off as kind of racist. Yeah, I kind of took it the opposite way, I guess. I thought that he's kind of gritting his teeth because he has to work with Midnight, but he doesn't like it. And it's clear to me in the way that he approaches Midnight, I'm from the League Against Cruel Sports, the fact that he brings it up to him at all when Midnight is more powerful than he is and sort of at the center of his power, I feel like if it didn't bother him at all, he wouldn't have bothered to say anything. Well, okay, I guess the question, though, is do you think that this... Do you, do you think that Del, Delano and Ridgeway are showing us this with disapproval, or do you think that it's just sort of, you know, horror comic brutality? Like, like hey, look at, look at this crazy shit, you know? That's a good question, and I'm not sure that it slips entirely out of the realm of gratuitous awfulness. <laughs> sensationalism. Yeah, sensationalism. I, I did get the impression, I guess, going into this story that... Midnight is someone who can work with Constantine in a moment, but he and Constantine may have to have words at some future date. Like, he could be set up as somebody who will be a villain later. Yeah, he's certainly the type of character who's, you know, a sometime friend, sometime enemy. I think that's true. I just noticed that there's a quote from Neil Gaiman on the back of this uh, oh, yeah? tray. Grungy urban horror. Politically sharp, streetwise, and enjoyable as when it was first published. Oh look! If you ever wanted to, if you ever wondered where yuppies really come from, or the right way to talk to a zombie, you'd better read this book. This isn't the right way to talk to anybody, even <laughs> a zombie, even a zombie. So you get an explanation here for Midnight that he basically draws power from all forms of vice, which is why he has that all, all the forms of vice in his club. But, okay, he's kind of a shitty person. Oh well, <laughs> yeah. And so then they go to see Gary, who. Midnight has locked in a cage. Yeah, Midnight warns John... Midnight warns John that he better have a strong stomach for what's coming, which leads John to turn the subject to Gary. He's locked up in a cell in the basement of Midnight's club. This is one of my favorite lines of the issue. Midnight. Power is needed to defeat this rogue spirit. Constantine, not to mention low animal cunning. To which Midnight replies, Yes, your forte, I believe. You are a ruthless and deceitful man, Constantine. <laughs> <laughs> to which he replies, well, nobody's perfect. Yeah. Okay, so they go see Gary. Yeah, and Midnight has him locked in a cell, but we can't really object to uh, Midnight's treatment of Gary here uh, when, you know, Constantine himself tied him up earlier. Yeah, I mean, Gary's dangerously unstable, but they're using him for a purpose. They're using him for a purpose all beyond his own welfare. Yes, right, and... and and this issue is largely about the guilt that Constantine feels for using Gary in the way that he ends up doing so. But you don't feel that bad for Gary. He is, you know, possibly a child molester and, and, and definitely a junkie who accidentally put New York City into a bunch of danger because he's so stupid. Yeah, he's a trashy person, but I don't know if, if that's supposed to entirely justify what they do here. I guess I don't want to. I don't want to totally give it away, even though it should probably be pretty obvious by now what the plan is. So, yeah. So let's move well, on. Well, well, Constantine doesn't quite let him in on the plan at this juncture. He says, "The more he pleads, the easier it is to lie." Yeah, he reassures Gary repeatedly, but he's not being fully, fully honest with him. He says, "Midnight puts a heavy whammy on it," and then it's all over. Bar the shouting. Yeah, and they've got Gary locked up here basically to attract, to attract Namoth. He's blatantly referred to as the bait. Presumably because of his desire for heroin, which it looks like he's not getting. Mm. Right, they've got to they've got to get that hunger as strong as they can get it so that it attracts Namoth. It has to become the strongest desire in the city. Yeah. So John <laughs> promises that this time tomorrow they'll be on their way home. And then Midnight takes a moment to twist the knife as they, as he and John leave, leave the cell block. <laughs> yeah, I really like... Midnight says, He told me you were friends as children. And Constantine replies, Do shut up, Pops, before you get boring. Yeah, we have a, uh, a, nice, a nice piece of contrast here in that we get a scene of Midnight tending to his zombies, which is counterpointed with John reassuring Gary. 
both sort of dealing with a, a walking dead man that they use for their own purposes. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good parallel I hadn't noticed. So next, Constantine goes to his hotel and argues with the ghosts about his guilt. Yeah, he's actually staying in Midnight's Club. I wondered why this was like an offensively stereotypically African-appointed hotel room. Oh, okay, that's what it is. That explains how the zombie gets in to wake him up later. Right, right. He's got a number of ghosts in here. Sister Anne-Marie, a Catholic nun. Two guys named Frank and Benjamin. Mm -hmm. Who are literally in the closet? Yeah. And they cute. have leather gear on, it looks like. Yeah, yeah. And then this is cute. He spots a pair of ghostly feet under the curtains and pulls the curtain back to reveal Emma. Right. So she's a ghost, but she's bad at hiding. <laughs> I thought you were going for like a, you know, she she looks like a person in a ghost costume. <laughs> but she's a real She ghost. kind of does, actually. <laughs> yeah. But this is a good moment that sets up sort of Constantine's attitude toward his ghosts and the, the lost friends that he's got. He... Cusses them all out for bothering him. Says that, you know, they knew the risks and it's not his fault what happened to them. And then he turns out the light and he goes to bed. Yeah, and he, uh, and they all disappear. And then Emma's ghost apparently whispers, Good night, John, in his ear, and that's too much for him. And he, uh, he sobs through the rest of the night, we are told. Her soft voice next to my ear is the last straw. I suffocate my sudden sobs in the pillow and wait for dawn. Right. So that's a nice moment in which we see that Constantine puts on a lot of bravado, but he's also got some genuine feeling. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, he definitely has a lot, a lot of guilt and a lot of self-hatred, which, which we will see again in Dangerous Habits when we yeah. get that far. Meanwhile, uh, so for the next few pages, we get uh, Nemoth's point of view on things, and he gives a really long monologue. And Oh, and this is the page where, as you see, the, uh, the priest is now pinned under the cross, but there's no more Christ figure on it. Yeah, we see so, how much Nemoth is enjoying New York City as he flies above it in the form of a fly made of many giant flies. We see the comic book dude eating his comics and the gemstone dude eating his gemstones. And also yeah, we have a muscle place, guy who eats his own hand. I missed this, I missed this, but the priest appears to be crushed under the under the crucifix. But yeah, more importantly, we can't see the Christ figure on it. There's no more Christ figure on the crucifix, which makes it look like the priest ate it. Yeah, and I actually like this scene. This is more of the show than the tell that I was talking about before, as we see this bodybuilder working out late at night in the gym, and Nemoth flies in and takes control of him and forces him to eat his own muscles. Well, he eats his own hand. Okay. I don't know if he's eating his muscles. It, it's, it's really bizarre. <laughs> Definitely weird as shit. But yeah, I mean, I thought this was an effective an effective way of conveying the notion that that people have all kinds of different obsessions and, and Nima preys on all of those. All of those hungers in a different way or in the same way. That this guy's obsession is like his own body and that's what he's forced to devour. Yeah. And um, it's a nice callback to the hunger scene that, that kicks off the story arc where that fat guy tried to eat that other dude's hand. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's just Nemoth is just obsessed with hands, is this thing. Right. So now we have or, or John Ridgway is obsessed with drawing people <laughs> eating people's hands. I think he was eating a chicken out of the guy's hand. No, I think you're probably right. But I just like the idea that John Ridgway really likes drawing people eating hands. Their own and other people's. <laughs> oh well, I kill people and eat their hands. <laughs> That's two problems. Uh, <laughs> okay, but in this... There's also a lot of chickens in this book. <laughs> he likes drawing chickens. Well, he, you know, it's important to be good at drawing animals. <laughs> but much like, much like either Sam Keith, <laughs> Flores Colorist is really good at drawing pictures of cats. John Ridgway knows how to draw a chicken. If you know how to draw an animal real good, you gotta, you gotta show that skill off. No, I think, I think that's a good point, because, like, there are all kinds of great comic artists who are very abstract in their drawing of people. You don't have to be that good drawing people. <laughs> but you got to know how to draw a chicken if you're going to have one in there. Right. Animals are tough. If you know how to draw horses, you're like pretty much full-time on Conan comic books and, and Paul Revere. <laughs> you learn how to draw a horse and that, you, you get to it. Anyways, so in this city of obsessions... The strongest desire is now coming from Gary Lester. Well, so so Nemeth makes up his mind that he's going to come for Gary Lester. 
and Constantine wakes up to a zombie who has been sent by midnight. And that just makes a lot more sense now that I now that you point out that he was sleeping at Midnight's Club. Yeah, one of the things that bothered me about this issue is how he apparently has the zombies walking all over in his club doing all kinds of tasks uh, mm-hmm. without anybody noticing that there are like six foot tall, mostly naked black men walking around doing these jobs. Well, maybe they think and it's it, just... It would certainly be more of an issue if he also sent them to hotels across town. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe they think it's just part of the shtick. I guess that's possible. I don't know. The whole thing is very off-putting, and I feel like it would be to people in New York City in 1988 also. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. you know my opinion on the subject. Yeah. <laughs> they go up to the penthouse, bathed in the morning sunrise. Yeah. And <laughs> Papa Midnight shows John his super cool chair that a lot of people died in. The mercy seat. I thought that you would find this amusing. It's a chair that a lot of people died in. Yeah, it's an electric chair from Sing Sing, which has killed over 300 people. Apparently there's a lot of magic in that chair. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's not just like, oh, and also I have a fucking awesome chair. <laughs> before we get started, Constantine, before we get started, check out my chair. Do you know how many people died in it? Check out my fucking Springsteen LPs, John Constantine. Also, I have this chair. <laughs> no. And, and Constantine says it's a little over the top. Yeah. But, but Midnight says, you know, it, it's powerful artifact, and I thought you would enjoy the irony. And Constantine is not enjoying this at all. Yeah, he's actually wearing sunglasses. I don't know if that's supposed to... If that's a deliberate attempt to convey a hungover impression about John. Or maybe it's just because they're staring into the morning sun. Right. He is definitely looking not as sharp as he was on page two of the first comic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, he's not as dapper anymore, for sure. Um, so he reassures Gary, don't be daft, pal. It'll be a doodle. A doddle? Yeah, a doddle. Okay. So they put him in an electric chair, which he's he's either really dense or he knows that some shit's not right. Yeah, and uh, John gives him some heroin, it looks like? No. No. He he shows him the heroin. Oh, and okay. He says, and he says he's going to give it to him later. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Midnight starts in on a, a voodoo ritual. Looks like another chicken's going to bite the dust. Yeah. And at this point, Gary notices that they don't have a bottle to trap Nemeth in. So he's not as dense as it might seem. Oh, and there's just another part here. Constantine says, I suddenly remember Gaz's mum. can see her as clear as yesterday, a large, slow woman hanging over a gate, calling him into tea. She wanted him to be a doctor. Dead now, I think. Cancer. She never did like me. Bad influence, she said. People should listen to their mothers. Yeah, he's a bad man. He's feeling really dark about what uh, about what he has to do to Gary, but yeah. But again, I kind of think that Gary has it coming. <laughs> but but Gary is you know a former friend of Constantine's, so yeah. From out of the morning sun, Nemeth comes flying in, in a swarm of flies, and and that's when Gary notices that there's no bottle. Right, and Constantine explains to us the audience that. He's so strong at this point, much stronger than he was when Gary got him into a bottle, that there's no way they could hold him if he didn't already want to go where they want him to go, which is into Gary. Yeah, this is a pretty effective reveal. I mean, they've been building it up for the entire two-page arc, and it's kind of obvious what they have to do from the moment we find out. You mean two-comic arc? Yeah, I'm sorry. From the two-issue arc, it's kind of obvious from the moment we find out about the sacrificial child what they have to do. Mm-hmm. But this is a pretty effective reveal, as as John says, where we want it to go, turn the page into Gary Lester. Yeah, but before you turn the page, you also get a really mean face from Dr. Midnight, which I think is worth pointing out. Oh, yeah. He's making the meanest face ever. Yeah, and then we have two whole pages of uh, Gary being swarmed over and filled up by flies, which are quite, a, which is quite effectively disgusting. <laughs> yeah, and, and his muscles and his clothes are, like, bulging. Yeah. From the from the influx of mass. Yeah. John gets out the tattooing stuff and starts making the binding marks on Gary. Yeah. Yeah, but Gary busts loose and tries to kill him, but John says, you know, don't let it make you hurt me because we're friends. 
Yeah, nearly chucks John off the building. Actually loses his sunglasses. Goodbye, sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. And not-so-dapper-looking Constantine looks even less dapper with his sunglasses lost. Yeah. And then John offers Gary something to keep him safe and warm, which turns out to be a straitjacket that he binds him in. Yep. And then he finally gives him his heroin. Straight from Thailand. The fix is as much as a mercy stroke as I can manage. And Constantine kisses him on the forehead and then sits with him with yeah. whiskey and cigarettes, lots of them. He, he tells himself that... Some people are doomed from the word go. They devour themselves, searching for annihilation. That's, I guess, the way that he justifies his treatment of Gary to himself, and I guess you can decide whether you buy that. Yeah, I, I mean... Gary's a wreck, and this situation is his fault. Is he still ill-used by Constantine to solve this problem? Well, like, like Neil Gaiman says, it's grungy urban horror. You yeah. know? Constantine does not have Superman's powers... He has to save the city. He's he's doing it the way that he has to do it. Yeah, this is the way it has to be done. And the rules of the story establish that somebody's got to die to seal up Nima. Right. And Constantine undertook this whole thing to solve this problem, even though it's, you know, really not his problem. So so there's a bit of heroism mixed in with his mixed in with his evilness. <laughs> I wouldn't go so far as to call it evil, because he's doing it for the greater good, kind of unambiguously. But his, his bastardliness. He's sort of selfish about the way he goes about it. Yeah. Well, John Constantine frequently refers to himself as a, as a bastard. Yeah. And so I think we can call this his bastardliness. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair call. I like that word for it. Yeah. So, yeah, John uses cigarettes and whiskey to get through the night as Nemeth and Gary consume each other. And he is just a wreck. He is woken by Dr. Midnight as he is lying in a pool of spilled whiskey and his own vomit the following morning. Well, and the ghosts show up as soon as, uh, as soon as Gary dies to sort of condemn what John has done. In fact, they literally give him the finger. Yeah. Which, again, it tells you something about, about the rating level that must be on this comic book. Can you not have a middle finger? Can you not show the mean finger in an, in an ordinary PG-13 comic book? I know that in a lot of circumstances it's censored. You know, you, can, you certainly can't show somebody giving the finger on television. They'll pixelate it. Yeah, I guess that's true. So That's true. So Midnight wakes up John, pointing out that for all his power, John leaves himself very vulnerable when he passes out drunk inside an enemy's stronghold. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I thought he meant vulnerable to Nemeth. That's an interesting point, yeah, because John is is deep in his vices right now. Yeah, and and uh, and not to mention literally unconscious at one point. But it seems like Nemeth has died with Gary Lester. And yes, and I, I want to point out this panel here of hungover John in his shabby suit compared to Midnight, who looks fancy as hell and looks perfect. In his freshly pressed black suit. Yeah, he looks... This really calls out the difference between them. I think the difference between the two of them, they both do bastardly things, but John has a conscience. Mm -hmm. Midnight isn't affected by this at all. And, and, and in this comic book, he has a literal conscience because there's literally the ghosts of his dead friends condemning him for what he's done. Yeah. Midnight says, Grief, Constantine, is a luxury. A magician must separate himself from his humanity. So, to which John replies, you know something, Midnight? You get right up my bloody nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so he's on his way. He, he needs to put an ocean between him and all this. So he's on his way back home. This is a moment I like, incidentally, is that he's doing his pulp narration again. And then he says, Jesus, I'm talking like a brat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The book ends with him saying, Sodom, they're only bloody ghosts. Who needs them? Yeah, and, and as he boards his taxi to get to the airport to, to get the hell out of New York, he sees Gary Lester walk across the street from Midnight's Club to join the rest of his ghosts. Yeah, so, so that is the end of Hellblazer number two, and it's the end of the Hunger story arc. Yep. So this storyline definitely had its problems. I think, safe to say, definitely kind of racist in places. Mm-hmm. But it is a good introduction to the complex character that is John Constantine and his, you know, and his sass. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of this arc. 
there's some good stuff in there with the way that John relates to uh, to Midnight and the way that he is contrasted with Midnight. Mm-hmm. I think that it's an effective introduction to who John is and who, how he works when he's by himself. I mean, John Constantine, Demon Hunter, had not been a thing that, that people had seen at this point. He was a guest star in Swamp Thing. He dealt with Swamp Thing's problems. So I understand the need for the story. And I think it's an adequate story, but it's not particularly an immortal one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think this is destined to be the greatest John Constantine story that we cover here on Vertigais. It has some cool moments. The art particularly, like I said, I'm not completely sold on, but it it has moments of being really, really cool, especially the way that the demon is portrayed. It also has moments of being really ugly. Yeah. And maybe that's just something that you have to put up with from a horror comic, but... Yeah, there's definitely a sort of cheap nastiness, which is very much the British horror aesthetic, mm-hmm. especially in that, in that time period. And we get even more of that in the next issue. Okay. Not, uh, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but... Yeah, but it does basically set up the conflict that John is going to talk about even on Into Dangerous Habits, that, uh, that he thinks of himself as leaving a trail of dead friends as the cost for his, for his <laughs> heroic activities. His way of life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that was the introductory story arc of Hellblazer. We've done the first story of Sandman last week, which means that next week we're getting into the first story arc of Preacher. I hope you guys will come back for that. See you next week.